Welcome to Midweek, a place where we dive deep into Scripture. So grab your Bible, a pen, and a notebook, and get ready to study God's Word. Okay, tonight, um, in case it's your first time with us, we have notes outside. In case you didn't pick one up, you can follow along, but you don't have to. But we're going to look at the conquering of Jericho um, in uh, chapter uh, 6 of Joshua. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to break the chapter into two halves. And tonight, we're going to look at it just from a pure what it is and then an application standpoint. Now, let me tell you about application. Application is kind of your bread and butter, I think, in my opinion, for any preacher. Because if you think of your human body, your skeletal system, that is your doctrine. And you have to have your skeletal system. But you have to have flesh on that skeleton, and the flesh is the application. You don't want to fall into the trap of wanting just more and more information. Jesus did not say, I came to give you information. He said, I came to give you life. And so the application is where you draw life from. It's where the challenge comes from, to live for God. So in the first half tonight, we're going to look at that, take it from that aspect. And that's one of my favorite things to do is to apply scripture. But then next week, we'll do application in the second half of the chapter. But next week, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take... um, all the archaeological evidence that has been found that proves that the Bible was right uh, from the get-go. Because there's been all kinds of attacks on this idea of Jericho throughout history. And so next week we're going we're gonna to fill in all those gaps and you're going to see like, wow, because this really is an amazing thing that when you find out what the archaeologists have found and what the Bible says about the event, it's really incredible what, what's, ha- what's happened here. So we're going to do that. Now, I want to begin tonight uh, doing something that uh, I think is really important. And uh, there's always, there's this ongoing debate, and it's ongoing, uh, that Joshua couldn't have gotten to Jericho around 1406 uh, B.C., that he probably got there in the 1500s and something B.C., and if he would have got there at that time, guys, there would have been no city for Joshua to conquer, and so these archaeologists are trying to push it earlier, and therefore there's no city, and therefore there's no Jericho, and therefore this whole thing is a fable, and that's what they just try to do. Now, let me just kind of destroy that argumentation from the get-go tonight so we know and be confident that the Bible's correct and Joshua did get there about 1406 B.C. He did leave with Moses. They did leave Egypt about 1446, 1447 B.C., somewhere in that time frame. Now, in your, uh, keeping your marker here in Joshua, turn over to 1 Kings to your right. And I want to show you something. And there's some other verses I'm going to have you turn to that are not in your notes. And I thought, well, I'm going to give you the full picture since it is a Bible study. But when you're in 1 Kings 6, and look at verse 1. When you're there, say, I'm there, if you would. Okay, I want you, I want to wait a few seconds because I want you all to see this. Because I think it's very important as far as getting your timetables right. Because people are always trying to discredit this word of God. Now look at verse 1 in 1 Kings 6. It says, now it came about in the 480th year after the sons of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, notice that, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month Ziv, which is in the second month, that he began, Solomon began to build the house of the Lord. Now, now we have a time frame. The Bible gives us a time frame that we can work with. Now, we know that Joshua, historically, we know he starts building 
the temple in 967 B.C. We know by this whole thing, it's given us dates and everything, 967. It tells us that's 480 years after they left Egypt. Now, if you add 480 to 967, you come up with 1447 B.C. That's when they left Egypt. The Bible's giving you that time frame. Then, if you subtract the 40 years that they wandered in the desert, now you know that Joshua gets to the Jordan River, Jericho, about 1406, 1407 B.C. Now, there's a certain... Uh, there was a certain archaeologist, her name was Kenyon, and from things that I've studied and read, she was a good archaeologist, but she made a major mistake according to today's archaeologist. When she went and studied Jericho, and there's been many archaeologists studying Jericho, she was looking, her mistake was she was looking for one thing to substantiate that the dates of Jericho were true, that it would have been 1470 BC. She was looking for uh, um, uh, pottery from Cyprus, Cyprian pottery. And that's the one thing she wanted to find. And she did not find it in, in the, the layer of ash and different things. And so, because she couldn't find it, she said, therefore, the dating is wrong. That Joshua had to have probably gotten there a lot earlier. And therefore, there was no Jericho at that time. And therefore, this whole thing is basically fable. And it's not true. Now, more archaeologists have now come in after the fact of that. And if you ever want to read anything on stuff like this, I'll just give you this. Some of you like do deeper reading. There's an archaeologist Christian guy by the name of Titus Kennedy. Titus Kennedy. He's got two really good books. I really love the books. It's Unearthing the Bible, and the other one's about unearthing Jesus. It's really good. He's an archaeologist. Now, and I'll say a little bit more about something that he did in a second. But other archaeologists have come to, they went and studied Jericho, and they're always studying Jericho. And uh, how many have been to Jericho, by the way? I um, yeah, just a few of us. Okay, and so Jericho was closed for a while. This last time we went, Jericho was open again, so we were fortunate to be able to go in there because I hadn't been able to go in there the last two times before that. But um, so the other archaeologists have come, they studied it, and here's, they realized what Kenyon, her mistake, because what they did is they looked at the pottery in Jericho, and they compared it to pottery in other archaeological digs of the same era of time in Canaan's land, in the land area of Israel. And pottery is like today. You know how styles change? You know, your kitchen was cool 10 years ago. Any amens on that? And now you watch HGTV and now you hate your kitchen, you know. And so things change, okay? And same thing with them. And so every 50 years or so, whatever, pottery styles would change. But they found the same pottery style dating the same era of time in other archaeological digs in the land of Israel, thus substantiating that Joshua did come to Jericho about 1407 B.C., and he did conquer the city, and there was a city there that he did conquer. And so it substantiates everything. Now, can I give you two more scriptural references to substantiate that? Because I want to show you how cool the Bible is and how the Bible backs up itself. You want to see that, yes or no? Yeah, I bet you do, huh? Okay, here we go. Now turn over to Judges, go back a little bit, it's Joshua, then Judges, go to Judges chapter 11, and there's a little, little verse in here, in Judges 11, when you're there, say, I'm there, and I'm going to just hit it and run, because I don't, this is not my main teaching tonight, look at verse uh, 26, 
This is in the time frame. If you look at the beginning of chapter 11, it's a time frame of Jephthah. He's a judge of Israel. But in verse 26, it says, While Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages in the Aor, and its, and its villages, in all the cities that are in the banks of the Arnon, and you guys will not remember this, but you two were at the Arnon Valley, and you don't remember, but we took pictures at the Arnon Valley. 300, now notice, 300 years. Why did you not recover them within that time? Now, this is important, because now it's telling us that, and if you read the whole thing, that when they got to the land, now 300 years have passed since they got to Israel. The time of Jephthah is 1100 B.C., you add 300 years of that, you get 1400 B.C., around 1407 B.C. So once again, it substantiates the time frame of Joshua and Jericho. But there's one more. You want to see it? You go to the New Testament. You go to the book of Acts. Look at Acts chapter 13. There's another substantiation of the time frame. And you've probably read it many times and you never, never really noticed it. And, and you know, you're not going to notice it. It's not going to be a big jump out at you. But if you read the whole context of, look at chapter 13 and this verse 19 and 20, you'd have to read the whole context to get it. But it's, it's enough right here. Look at verse 19 and 20. It says, When he had destroyed seven nations' land of Canaan, it was Joshua as he's traveling, he distributed their land as an inheritance, all of which took about 450 years. After these things, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Well, if you go to the time of Samuel, if you back up 450 years, you get to the moment when, oh, um, when Moses takes Israel out of Egypt in the Exodus. And so it follows the same time frame of Joshua getting to the, to the city of Jericho around 1407 B.C. So the Bible backs itself up and backs itself up and backs itself up. Isn't that a cool thing right there? And that's just a free one. So let's go back to Joshua chapter 1. Let's get into some application tonight. So verse 1 says this. Now they're knocking on the door. It says, Now Jericho was tightly shut because of the sons of Israel. No one went out and no one came in. Number one in your notes, if you're taking notes, and that's this. True peace comes from God. Would you say amen to that one? And it really does. Now, Jericho, is it tightly shut? Say yes. Is anyone going out or in? The answer is no. And so it's a walled city, and as we'll learn next week, the bottom of the wall is, is stone, and it goes up, I better get this right, I think it goes up 20 feet, and then there's a top wall, and that goes, it's a mud brick wall above that, and it's about 15 more feet, so it's about 35 feet high, this wall of Jericho. I think I told you before that Jericho was about 8 or 9 acres, but recent excavations, archaeologists, they put it more at about 17 acres in size, so... Think of it a little over twice the size of our church land is the actual size of Jericho. So they're coming there, and the people are all shut in tight. Now, they have a sense of peace, do they not? But would they have a perfect peace in there? And I think the answer is no. I, I don't think they'd have that perfect peace. The walls give them a little bit of peace, but they don't give them ultimate peace. And we could always apply that and say, don't we have certain walls that we've built in our life? Not to keep people out, but walls of security in our life that would give us peace. Any amens on that? But they don't give us ultimate peace, do they? That'll never give us. Now keep your finger here, and I want to show you a verse in Psalm 127. And we're going to look at verse 1 in that. And just we'll hit it and say a few things, and we'll come back. Because perfect peace is a real important thing, because God can give us perfect peace in any situation. 127, verse 1. When you're there, say, I'm there. <clears throat> now, uh, by the way, I love Psalm 127. 
You may not remember, but I had, did, did a whole series on this about seven years, eight years ago. I love this psalm. I mean, I think I could write a book on this psalm, but here we go. Verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Now, vain means meaningless. It's a literal Hebrew word means meaningless. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. Now watch, I'll read another verse. It is vain for you to rise up early to retire to, to eat the bread of painful labors. Now think of what he's saying here, and I won't go any further because there's so many different applications there. He's saying, unless God builds your house, unless God's building your life, unless you're trusting God to guard everything, you could sit there and work hard day and night, day and night, painful labors, day and night, painful labors, and think you have security in life. But we all know by now, nothing is really fully secure in life, correct? But God's got to build a house. And so like them, we can be in the city thinking, well, I got a certain sense of security, but do I really have full security? Do I really have full peace? Because full peace only comes from knowing that you have entrusted everything to God and that God is on your side. God's peace transcends the physical, does it not? It always transcends the physical. Now think about this when it comes to a sense of security and a sense of peace. Anybody can say they have peace when they're in a peaceful situation. Any amens? The true test of whether I have peace or you have peace is when we're not in a peaceful situation. Think about how you act and how you react or how you respond when things are not peaceful. That will tell you that's a good gauge of the growth in your life or my life, whether I have true peace or not. Because anyone can say they have peace when things are going good. But do you have peace when things are going so-so. And the real answer to that is, do, am I letting God build my house? Am I letting God build the city of my life, like in Psalm 127 and verse 1, where I will have the true Prince of Peace giving me peace in my life. Amen? Amen. Now, let's go back. Let's go back to Joshua. Now, oh, i got to give you a side note, a little by the way. Um, as I told you before, um, uh, this archaeologist... Uh, uh, Titus Kennedy, um, I really I like his, his books, but, um, and he's really up to date on things. You know, people say, and this is a sidebar for those of you who like this stuff, um, they, how many have ever heard that there's no evidence for the Exodus, that Israel, the Jews were never over there, and there's no evidence that they ever left? Ever heard stuff like that? Well, there's evidence, guys. Trust me, there's evidence. Now, this guy Titus Kennedy, this archaeologist, what he did was, and I'm, this guy's gutsy, man. And he's a professor out here, I think at Biola is what he is. But what he did, you know what he did? He goes by himself. He goes into the Sudan by himself. Into this certain area of Sudan, which at, back in days of Egyptian time was, all, was in the land of Egypt. It was part of Egypt. He goes there. By himself. Did I say by himself? It's really dangerous. And what he does is he wants to go find this certain thing that he's heard about. And he does. And he goes and he finds on the walls during the new kingdom, two new kingdom temples and a temple pillar. And he takes pictures and he shows the pictures in his books of these hieroglyphics. And one of the inscriptions of this temple in this land that was in Egypt, dated from 1400 BC, around there, one of the inscriptions says this, translated English, the land of the nomads of Yahweh. The only group that follows Yahweh is Israel. And they call them nomads. They're travelers. 
So it is evidence from 3,400 years ago that they knew of the Israelites, that the Israelites were traveling like nomads through the desert. They left Egypt and they were worshipers of Yahweh God. Is that insane or what? And this guy took the risk, took the pictures, and it's, it's really cool. So I, I just, anybody love stuff like that besides me? I just love stuff like that. Now, look at verse 2. The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and the valiant warriors. Now, point two in your notes, if you're taking notes, and that's this. We fight from victory, not for victory. We fight from victory, not for victory. That's a very important truth in our life. Notice in verse two again. Does God say, see, I'm going to eventually give you the city, or does he say, I've given you the city? I've given you the city. In other words, it's a done deal. Listen, friends, this is where you have to look at life through spiritual eyes. You and I don't have a worldview that looks at it just from a materialistic or naturalistic perspective. We look at it from our God is a big God who controls everything in the universe and controls the pattern of the stars and the planets and keeps everything on its course. Any amens of that one? And so we understand from a different perspective, when things aren't going this way or believe me this, we still have victory, we trust God because we see through spiritual eyes what God is going to do in our life. Any amens of that one right there? So here's my question. If it's already a done deal, why all the elaborate plans he's going to give to Joshua on how to carry this out? If it's a done deal, why go through this elaborate? What's a, God, really? You're going to give it to me? Why all these plans? As we're going to read all these plans God told him to do. Because the promise of God does not relieve me from my duty to serve God and to do what God wants. Just because God gives me a promise doesn't mean, and this is, this is one of these things Christians, some, not all, but some Christians need to understand this. You can't just sit in your house and pray, 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 just do it, God, and you're not going to do anything about it? No, there's an aspect of our duty to do something about what God has told us to do. See, just because God is going to give us a victory and it's a done deal, we still have to step out and do something about it. Now watch the battle plan that God gives Joshua. This is really cool and bizarre all in one sentence. Verse 3. You shall march around the city, all the men of war circling the city once. You shall do so for six days. Also, seven priests shall carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. Then on the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times. And the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall be that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout. And the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people will go up every man straight ahead. Okay, this is God speaking specifically to Joshua. No one else hears this yet. This is the plan. Now, I want you to think about this. God says, okay, Joshua, I'm going to drop these thoughts. I'm going to tell you something. Here's how we're going to do it. You take the guys. You're going to go march around the city once a day for six days. And I can imagine Joshua saying, then we charge, right? No, no, Josh, stop. Okay, buddy. Stop, okay. Then on the seventh day, you're going to march around, not one time, not two times, but you're going to march around seven times, okay? And, and, and then we charge, right, God? And then, then stop, stop, Josh. Wait, wait, wait. You're going to make sure the Ark of the Covenant's with you and the men of war out front, this and that. And you're going to march around all that way. Now, you've got to understand something about Joshua. Now, by the way, 
It's kind of a crazy plan, isn't it? Now, this thing about Joshua and trying to digest this thing is, I, I, I like to call Joshua a five-tool warrior. In baseball, this is the guy, he can run, field, throw, hit, hit for power. That's Joshua, guys. This is the guy with all the experience. 40 years he's been fighting battles in the desert. This guy's he's a machine, man. He's a fighting machine. And now God tells him this plan. You're going to march around this way. Every day, once, for six days, come back to camp. Seventh day, march around seven times. And then on the seventh day after seven times, you're going to blow the, they're going to blow the trumpets. And when you blow the trumpets, tell all the guys to shout. And then all the guys shout, then, you know, the wall's going to come tumbling down. Now, if I'm Joshua, if you're Joshua, what are you thinking about that plan if you're a five-tool warrior? I'm thinking, well, that's kind of like the weirdest thing. Now, can, now, let's, now, imagine you're Joshua. God just told you, say, okay, gather around everybody, I'm going to give you the plan. Can you imagine that day? Can you imagine when we lay that out? Some of the people think, I think Joshua's eating too much manna. I think he had a little bit too much on the road there, buddy. Because that's a weird plan. It is kind of strange. Now, let's move on. So now Joshua has the plan. Verse 6, verse 6 through 10. It says, so Joshua, the son of Nun, because he had no mother. Okay, I just had to say it, okay. I just, this is an old stupid preacher's joke, but now you know it, okay. I just had to say it. The son of Nun called the priests and said to them, take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests carry the seven children. Now, he's, this is, he's, he's giving the plan to the people, guys. That's what he's doing. Let the seven priests carry the seven trumpets of ram's horn before the Ark of the Lord. Then he said to the people, go forward and march around the city and let the armed men go on before the Ark of the Lord. And it was so. That when Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets of ram's horn before the Lord went forward and blew the trumpets of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord followed them. And the Ark of the Covenant followed them. Verse 9. The armed men went before the priests who blew the trumpets. And the rear guard came after the ark while they continued to blow the trumpets. Verse 10. But Joshua commanded the people saying, you shall not shout, nor let your voice be heard, nor let a word proceed out of your mouth until the day I tell you, shout. Then, and only then, will you shout. Now let me give you some thoughts on this whole thing, okay, before we get into some cool stuff. Well, they're all cool stuff. Why the ark? Why are they bringing the ark along? I think there's a couple of really significant reasons. The ark is the presence of God in that day, is it not? So the presence of God is going to go with them. Another significant thing is, what's one of the items in the ark? The laws of God. So now you see the presence of God and the laws of God are leading and guiding the way. Another thing about the laws of God inside that ark is the laws of God will now be the vengeance, the justice carried out on an immoral people that live in the land, Jericho specifically, coming up. Because they're living in some pretty bad sins. Can I show you just quickly what God had warned the Israelites about early on? Keep your, keep your marker here and turn just to your left one book to Deuteronomy 18. Just we'll read it and run and hit back here. But watch this. Over in Deuteronomy 18, watch what God had warned them about before they ever got to the land. In verse 9, if you're there, say I'm there. 
Now look at verse 9. It says, When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those nations. Boy, that's, how many know that's great advice for today? There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or daughter pass through the fire. That was, remember, they're offering their babies up on the offering of the arms of the god Molech, live burning hot arms, and the babies are being burned alive as they beat drums to drown out the sound of the baby screaming. So they were in child sacrifice in this land. Who uses divination, who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who casts a spell, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. I think we all know kind of like what that's talking about, right? For whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord. And, and by the way, one of the reasons why it's detestable is not just because it's detestable, but it's another way of trying to get direction in your life outside of God. And you don't do that. And because of these detestable things, the Lord your God will drive them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God for those nations which you shall dispossess. Listen to those who practice witchcraft and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do so. So were they practicing some pretty bad things there? You better believe it. So now the word of God and the presence of God is going to exact vengeance on them. And so here comes the word, the written word of God coming to exact vengeance. So back to... to um, Jeremiah. Now, so that's the first thing. First thought: Why the ark? The second thing I want to bring out is this: the soldiers, as they march, are they allowed to speak or not? They must be silent. They've they've got to be silent. Now, the question is why? Why are they going to be silent? Six days marching, seven days, seven days. They're just they, have, they can't say a word. I mean, for some of us in this room, that'd be a, the toughest gig in the world, right? You, you want to hey, hey shh, shh, you know. Now, let me get, show you a parallel correlation. Look over to last book to your way to your right, Revelation chapter 8. And I'll just give you the correlation to this thing, but I think it's a little bit interesting. There's a lot of parallels, by the way, to Revelation and, 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 um, and Joshua. Now, we're going to, let me read verse, chapter 8, in chapter 8 of Revelation. Yeah? Yes, okay, look at 1 through 6. It says, when the Lamb broke the seventh seal, now these are the seals. There was silence in heaven for about a half hour. And I saw seven angels who stand before God. Seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer. And much incense was given to him. So that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints of the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. Does God hear your prayers? You better believe it. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire of the altar and threw it to the earth. This is the moment God answers all the prayers and all this thing is going to come into play now. This is in the future. And through the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes and lightning and earthquake. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. Now here's the parallel. The seal is broken. The seventh seal of judgment in the great tribulation. But the seventh seal actually opens up the trumpet judgments, the seven terrible trumpet judgments. Now, did you catch the very beginning in verse 1 of what I read and what's written? Did you catch it? When the Lamb broke the seventh seal in verse 1, what was it? Silence in heaven for about a half hour. We say that's the calm before the storm. storm. 
Okay, you take that thought right there. And now you're in Jericho. And you're inside. And here comes the guys. Here come the Israelites. And you see them camped out there. And they're marching. And you're inside. They don't say a word. Nothing. They march around your city. And you're like, what's going on? What's going on? And then they just circle it, and then they go home. You think, what's that about? Then tomorrow they get up, and they march around your city. They don't say a word. And then they go home. And every day they do this for six days. And you're getting a little bit nervy. Then the seventh day, they get up, and they march around the city, not one time, now they start the second time. What, what, do, what do you think is going on inside the city? Hey, they're doing it the second. This is, they broke protocol. And they're not saying a word. Now, if you're inside those walls of, um, of Jericho, what are you beginning to feel? I think a little bit of terror. I think, what's going on here? And you see, this is the whole calm before the, before the storm thing. It's coming. Judgment has come, just like we see in Revelation. It is coming here. I think it evoked terror in their hearts. Now, let me give you another thought on silence. Kind of touched on that before in the questions before here. Um, they're silent before God. Why is silence before God a good thing? It is a good thing. Let me give you an application just from there. Are they warriors marching around? You better believe they're warriors. They know how to fight, man. But they're silent. Now, to be silent takes a lot of self-control, does it not? It takes a lot of self-control to be silent. James, the half-brother of Jesus, in James 3, verse 1 and 2, he says that if you can bridle your tongue, then you can bridle your body. But if you can't control your tongue, if you just talk, 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 talk then you're probably, you're, you're probably out of control within your body and what you do and how you function in your life, too. And so silence becomes this very important thing. And a soldier has to be a very disciplined individual, does he not? And he has to be able to discipline himself. If I can't say a word, then I don't say a word. Which shows discipline, not just of the tongue, but discipline of the body. Because I have to be able to follow the marching orders of God. Now, when they get to the seventh day, and they march around the city the seventh time, then God gives a command for the trumpet players to start playing, right? And don't think of a trumpet like that. No, no, don't think of it like that. Okay? These are ram's horns, okay? And now God gives a command. They, seventh day, seven times around. So when people say they march around the city seven times, no, they march around 13 times, guys. Six and then seven is a th total of 13 times. And then they blow the trumpet. Now what's the big deal here? Why this? Well, all you have to do is go back in time. This is so significant in Leviticus 25 and in 27, you find something called the year of Jubilee. And this was a cool way that God kept the balance within society. When a person got so poor that they could not support themselves, what they could do, it was within the law of God, you can go back and read it, they could offer themselves as an indentured slave to somebody else. They become a servant to somebody else who could afford to keep them alive, and you go work their land and do those things. You stayed alive, your family stayed alive, and you could survive. You could also give up your land for price at that time because you had to survive. But here's the cool thing about the law of God. 
at the year of Jubilee, which is every 50 years, the year of Jubilee, what happens on the year of Jubilee is they blow the ram's horns, signifying Jubilee. And now all the slaves set free. And all the land that you might have had to give up because your land is actually an inheritance from God, by God, when you came in that land, that land that you gave up for because you couldn't do this, comes back to you. And you get to start all over again. Now if you think about that, and it makes perfect sense because they are coming back to the land. Was the land already theirs? Yes. Yes, Abraham was given the land, he came there. And so when the, 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 the trumpet blows, uh, the horn blows, it's signifying, this is your land, Israel. Take it back. Do you know now, if you go home and look on the map, or in the back of your Bible, look on the map of today's Israel, it's just a sliver of land. The, the, the narrowest part of it is 70 miles wide. That's how narrow it is. Do you know, this is nothing compared to what God says their land is. It's nothing. They have so much land from the Fertile Crescent on. It's all their land. That's why... Personally, um, when I see and hear these things about, you know, because our smart young people on college campuses marching against Israel today, you know, that, by the way, that really troubles me because our college campuses are a brainwash clinic now. They're brainwashing people that there's no God, that Israel is evil, and now they have these kids marching against Israel when the Hamas had done these evil things, and they won't even talk about that anymore. And I remember when I told you that Sunday when we prayed, I said, you watch though. Our news agencies are going to turn on Israel. Remember me saying that? They turned on them quick, man, and they do. But they sit there, and they're brainwashed, and they're marching against Israel. What they don't know, what we know, what God says is that land where the Hamas are and everything is and all more and even in Jordan and in, and in uh, Lebanon area and Syria, that is all really Israel's land. They don't possess it, but it's their land. And God says it is. And one day the real ram's horn is going to sound and they're going to, you know, they're gonna, it's going to be jubilee, et cetera, et cetera. But for us, it's I got excited that way. But anyway, for us, there's, a, there's jubilee. Think about how many things God has restored in your life. Think about how many things God has brought back. The ram's horn was blue. And God brings things back into your life. It's a year of jubilee. Now, number three in your notes, and that's this. I got to hurry. God looks for obedience, not success. Did you know that? Now, we live in a society that looks for success. Am I right? Yeah. And you don't want to, everybody wants to be successful. Now, <clears throat> does Joshua, when he starts out, he doesn't tell them how many days they're going to march around this. He doesn't tell he doesn't tell them when they're going to... He, doesn't, he waits till verse 10, then you're going to do this. Question. Did God... I mean, did Joshua... God told Joshua, when they do this, the walls will fall. And they charge straight ahead. Did Joshua ever tell the people in that that the walls are going to come down? He didn't tell them. He didn't tell them. Isn't that interesting? He didn't tell them. He says, you're just going to march around. I'd be like, okay, and then what? <laughs> this helps me make sense of God at times. Because let's be honest, how many times you're like, God, you're not making sense of me right now. But it helps me make sense of God at times. Because he'll give me march. See, they're going to march around, but there's no assurance of victory. He's not, he didn't tell them the walls are going to come down. They're just going to march around. That, that helps me a lot. No assurance of success. I just have to obey. I just have to do what God says. 
Because you see, when you get to heaven, he's not going to say, well done, good and successful servant. Well done, good and faithful servant. I don't know why, just on a personal level, I don't know why I got to pastor this church and I got to do all these things. There are many great men of God that have pastored churches of 50 people all their lives. I don't know why I got to do this. They're faithful as I am. And God doesn't measure it on success. He measures everything on faithfulness. Will I be faithful to God? Will I, will I do what, what God is telling me to do? Now, number four in your notes. And that's this. We are not to take matters into our own hands. We are not to take matters into our own hands. Now, aren't we great at taking matters into our own hands? Okay, now. Okay. I want you to see some. Look at verse, we're in Joshua 6. Look at verse 6. Uh, yeah. Look at the end of it. Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let the seven priests carry the seven trumpets of the ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. See that? Yes or no? Okay, good. Look at verse 7 at the very end. It says, go on before the Ark of the Lord. See that? Okay, let's look at verse 8. And it says in the middle, the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward. Now notice three times they're before God. You walk before me. You walk before me. You walk. Why the repetition? Why the redundancy of the statement? It's a very important statement that's being made and you don't, you don't want to brush over it. And this will be our kind of our last thought for tonight. So... Let's turn to Genesis 17. You're not going to come back, so you don't have to worry about coming back. The first book in the Old, in the Old Testament, Genesis. Look at 17. Now, everything before God, before the ark of the Lord, before the Lord, before the ark of the Lord. This is how you're going to do it, Joshua. Before the Lord, before the Lord. Now, we're going to go back and look at Abraham. In chapter 17 of Genesis, when you're there, say, I'm there. It's not hard to find, guys. Verse, if you hit Matthew, you're going the wrong way, all right? <laughs> Verse 1. Now when Abram, notice this Abram, because it's not Abraham yet. Ham means peoples. Avi, father, father of the peoples. He's not become that yet. He's Abram. Now when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me. Whoa, walk before me. And be blameless. Huh. Walk before me and be blameless. Why does God use the terminology here, walk before me and be blameless? Why is he telling Joshua, as you walk before me? As you walk before me. What's the big deal about that? Well, in Genesis 17, all we have to do is back up a chapter. Chapter 16. And what did all... Abraham do? He made a big blunder. God said, you're going to have a kid. You and your wife, Sarah, are going to have a kid. And he kind of gets impatient. And they decide they're going to do it their way. I'm going to do it my way. And then what's the, what's the result? They take the maid, Hagar, and they have a son, Ishmael. And right now, the whole Middle East and all the fighting there is basically because of Abraham's decision that day, almost 4,000 years ago. That, did you know that? Because Ishmael becomes the, 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 basically the father of all the Muslim nations. That's him. 
all the Arab nations. This is why the fighting goes on, because of that moment that Abram decided to do that. So now we find God in 17 saying, and no, 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 no. This time you walk before me and be blameless. In other words, don't do what you just did again. Don't take matters in your own hands. You do it the way I tell you to do it, and you won't incur any of these problems that you're now incurring in your life. So here's the point. When God says a certain way, gives a prescribed certain way, don't take matters in your own hands, Jim. Don't do it your way. But we grow impatient. We grow impatient. And I think I was telling, I was talking to Phyllis, and I said this, I said, one of the things about you before service, one of the things that we humans are great at doing, how many know you and I are the greatest salesmen to ourselves? We could talk ourselves into all kinds of things. We can justify, we can bend scripture, and it even sounds right, huh? Be careful. Be careful. Abraham makes a huge mistake. God is telling Joshua, don't make the mistake. You walk before me. You walk before me. You walk before me. Don't take matters into your own hands. Do it God's way. And if we do, then God builds the house. Then God guards the city. And we can have peace in our life. Real peace. The peace that transcends everything physical. Because God's building the house, not ourselves. Amen. We'll finish there. Let's pray. Lord, your word is rich. It's so full with things for us to challenge us and to guide us, and thank you for that. And I pray tonight, whatever trickle into our spirit and challenges us, praise the Lord. But we thank you, Lord, that we can take your word as true. The archaeological evidences are there. That we can take these dates as right on the money. Thank you, God, for that. And so, Lord, I pray tonight, God, blessings upon everyone here, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. If you need prayer or dedicated your life to Christ, please reach out to us on our social media, on Facebook and Instagram at NBCC Norco, or email us at hello at NBCC.com. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to share and subscribe to this podcast.